John 12, 12 to 19, Christ the King. This passage is the triumphal entry. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness for this cause. Also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray from this word that you'll teach us what it means for Christ to reign and rule and for what kind of reaction that you expect of us, understanding who he truly is. May we truly have a proper reaction to the character and role of Christ in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the last week of Christ's life. This day, where it says in verse 12, John 12, 12, on the next day, it is typically remembered as Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, the Sunday one week before Jesus rose from the dead. He, was, he entered Jerusalem on the Sunday, was crucified on Friday, and then raised from the dead the following Sunday. This eight-day period. This, that's what we have entered here in John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, that is the day after Jesus was anointed and the multitude was inquiring where he is and they wanted to see him and see Lazarus. On that next day, this great multitude, the same multitude, numerous people of verse 9, they come to the feast. It's time to begin celebrating the feast. And they are in Jerusalem. They hear that Jesus is in Jerusalem. Naturally, they want to know. Those who were local, both in Jerusalem, in the vicinity, and then also in the nation, and also from around the world. Jews from around the world would come to celebrate this Passover feast. There would likely have been millions of people here. This is why the apostle calls them the great multitude or great crowd of people. Numerous people, both men and women, especially men, were obligated to be there but the women and their children, they would also come. And that's why there would be so many people. They come because Jesus is there. They come because they've heard of him and they know of the recent miracle with Lazarus. Well, when they do come, verse 13, it says they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him. Why would they take the branches of a palm tree to go out to meet him. Because they understand that he is the Christ or claiming to be the Christ and they are going along with it. 
Some of them presumably actually understand Christ's proper role. Others of them probably did not understand him in the proper sense, in the sense that they expected him to be the imminent coming king, establishing his earthly kingdom. Whatever is their motive, whether right motive or wrong motive, there was a multitude of people there who took up palm branches in order to meet him. This was a custom whenever a king was celebrated, whenever a king was anointed, whenever he was inaugurated, whenever they would parade him throughout the streets of their capital, they would take the leaves of the palm tree and they would wave them in order to celebrate and to declare the the victory of God, the goodness of God, and peace. It's a symbol of a time of peace and prosperity and even a a period of victory that we have longevity in our kingdom, our nation will continue, we have a king who will protect us and guide us in the right way. Whether to anoint him, inaugurate him, or to celebrate some other facet of his kingship, they would take the branches of the palm trees and wave them. That was the symbolism that they are practicing here, which was typical even throughout the Old Testament. So then it says, what do they shout to him? What do the crowds shout? They shout, Hosanna. Hosanna. This is a linguistically corrupted form of the Hebrew word Hoshiana or Hoshiana, like that. And that would mean save now. Save now or save us now or please save us, something like that. That is the literal meaning of this word. But when it gets transferred to Greek and Greek to English, we have Hosanna. So Hosanna means that. Save now or save us now. Calling on Christ to save them. And then... It's actually a part of a quote from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Psalm 118, 25 to 26. Let's turn to that psalm. Psalm number 118. And we'll read this section in 22 to 29, which encompasses a Christological prophecy. Psalm 118, 22 actually describes the coming of Christ in this way. 118.22 The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Right there in 25, do save. The word for save is the same as the word for Hosanna. So save, verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That's the passage quoted in in John 12. The Lord is God and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Psalm 118 is and was understood 
to be a Christological prophecy, a messianic prophecy. Even the Jews understood, many of the Jews understood Psalm 18 to refer to the Christ. Now it's being quoted. That's why this multitude is quoting it, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are very glad, very happy that their king has come and pronounce a blessing on him because he, he, the king, Christ the king, Messiah the king, as they are fond of saying, King Messiah, the Jews were fond of saying, King Messiah or Christ the king, he is coming in the name of the Lord. They all acknowledge who actually is there. Whether they understand his role the purpose of Christ correctly or incorrectly, they identify him as the Christ. And he's coming not on his own authority. Notice there, verse 13. They know Christ does not come on his own authority, but he comes in the name of the Lord. He comes into the world, just like the, Samarit- uh, the woman of Samaria understood in John 4, 25 and 26. He who comes into the world, Christ coming into the world. He who comes will come in the name of the Lord. The Father will send the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4, 15. That's the declaration that they make here, that he's coming on the authority of God the Father. Is that not what John's been telling us all along? And Jesus has been preaching to the people all along, including the Sadducees and the Pharisees, declaring to them, I'm not coming on my own initiative. The Father sent me. I'm not doing all these things on my own initiative. The Father is one who told me. I'm not saying all these things on my own initiative. The Father has told me in the name of the Lord. Further, they say in 13, the King of Israel. If you don't know who we're talking about, we are talking about the King of Israel. They specifically identify Christ as the king of Israel. Remember, we've been saying, whether they understand it correctly or incorrectly, and in a large crowd, you're going to have a mixed reaction. Even though they might jointly be behaving in the same way, some may understand it correctly, some may not understand it correctly. To evidence that they did not understand it correctly we find in John 6, John 6, 15, an incorrect understanding of who Christ was. John 6, 15, in reference to his royalty or kingship. 6, 15, Jesus therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. After he fed the 5,000, they were very glad that they had somebody who was going to feed them and make sure to always feed them. So they wanted him, they wanted to arrest him, take him by force and put him on the throne, make him their king, force him into being their king. At that point, it wasn't time. Now it is time to declare himself openly and then be arrested soon after it. And that's why he enters Jerusalem. They know he is the king of Israel, but likely many of them are wrongly understanding his role. He is the king, 
He is the king of Israel. He is the king not just of Israel, that they are thinking Israel in terms of the physical nation. But this king of Israel is actually Israel, meaning true believers in Christ among Jews and true believers in Christ among Gentiles, together called Israel, like Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Jesus is the king, the one who rules over true Israel. Some Jews, some Gentiles together in one body, one nation. He is that kind of king. And this is their declaration, the king of Israel. At this point, when this assertion is made, not only here, but we'll see it in John 18, we see it elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that the people, though they wanted him to be the physical king, and though the accusation presented to Herod and presented to Pilate, the Roman authorities, the pagan Roman authorities, though their accusation was, he claims to be a king. Therefore, he is a threat to you, Herod. He claims to be a king. Therefore, he's a threat to you, Pilate. You need to make sure you arrest him and crucify him because he is rebelling against the Roman Empire. Since he's a rebel, since he's a rebel, you must deal with him. That's why we are concerned and we are presenting this Jesus of Nazareth to you because he claims to be a king. Therefore, you ought to put him to death. He was not that kind of a king. Not only did they accuse Christ that way, but since that time, there have been many within Christianity who say that Jesus died because he was a political rebel. Jesus died because he was trying to overthrow the Roman government. Jesus died because he was trying to be an earthly king. Some say that's why Jesus died. Others say Jesus came to be an earthly king, such as many who are disillusioned among the Jews. Christ, when he comes, he's supposed to be an earthly king. So since he didn't become one, Jesus did not become one, he's not the Christ. Others say, like dispensationalism says, Jesus' purpose in coming was to establish his earthly kingdom. And since that didn't happen, now we have this phase called the church age where now the gospel is being spread among the Gentiles. So now we have a spiritual second plan or plan B of God instead of plan A. Plan A was Jesus comes to be an earthly king for Israel and only Israel. No, none of those are correct. Jesus did not die a political death. He was not a political uh, rebel. He was not a revolutionary. He was not a violent man. He was not a rioter. Nothing of the sort. He didn't come for that reason, which is what we find in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. He comes in this way, which was the typical way, the kings would ride on donkeys and also on horses. But here on the young donkey, the colt of a donkey, here he's riding on that. Why on a donkey's colt? Because 
It was firstly to fulfill prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It was to fulfill prophecy. But in this prophecy, it is a prophecy of encouragement. It's a prophecy of demonstrating the humility of the king, of the Christ who is king. This display, public display, is in order to encourage them to understand that their king comes humbly, comes meekly, comes not to rant and rave, not to commit violence, not to form a mob, not to create a riot and violence, not to be an insurrectionist, not to overthrow anybody, but come in a humble way, in a very genuine, sincere, quiet, humble way. This is how he entered Jerusalem. Zechariah 9.9 is the prophecy fulfilled here. That passage also among Jewish commentators, they understood that passage to be a reference to the coming Christ. They, many of them understood it that way, without a doubt that that referred to the coming Christ. Here, the Apostle John tells us that this is fulfilled. In this entry, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So then, who is it, or and what is it that should not happen? The people are referred to here as the daughter of Zion. Why daughter of Zion? Because Zion, the city, and even the nation, the inhabitants of the nation are often referred to as daughters or children. And the nation or the city referred to as the mother. It's a figure of speech. The city or the nation is the mother and its inhabitants, the citizens, the people, are referred to as children or daughters. So here, fear not daughter of Zion. No need to fear. And here we're talking about the true Zion who understands the true meaning of Jesus' entry into the world and his true entry into Jerusalem because he's about to die on the cross for our sins. In reference to that true meaning, he says, fear not. You don't have to fear the people. You don't have to fear the Romans. You don't have to fear sin. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear Satan. You don't have to fear hell and eternal punishment. No need of fear whatsoever in those ways. Don't fear man. Don't fear your circumstances. Don't fear life. Don't fear death. Don't fear this life. Don't fear the afterlife. Don't fear anything. No anxiety, no worries, no fears. Fear not. This is a word of encouragement to the people of God. Have no fear. Why? Behold, your king comes sitting on a donkey's colt. Don't fear because he's coming and he's coming to accomplish whatever God has intended for him humbly in great humility. Not in overthrow, not in violence, but through the ironic way of conquering sin and death on the cross. That's the way in which he comes. So if he comes that way, understand him that way. Don't follow Christ for the physical things. Follow Christ for the spiritual things he gives. Of course he will provide our basic necessities the physical things, but follow him for the spiritual. 
Well, when the physical is happening, notice verses 16 and following, what happens here? 16 says, These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. When it was happening, what are the disciples doing? They are caught up in all the excitement. They are caught up with all of the fanfare. They are caught up with the crowd. They are seeing what's going on with him, but in their mind, it's not making a connection between a prophecy and the fulfillment of it is actually happening before their very eyes. They were so mesmerized by the crowds and everything that was being said and done that they weren't thinking about Scripture. They were thinking about what was being said and done. But after he was glorified, meaning after he rose from the dead and displayed himself to them over a period of 40 days with many convincing proofs, that's when they realized what actually was done in recent days and how that scripture in Psalm 118 and how the other scripture in Zechariah 9 were fulfilled before their very eyes and they didn't realize it. They didn't realize it because the Spirit didn't reveal it to them. And meantime, they are walking in the dark, at least in reference to these scriptures, until the time God reveals it to them. We have here further, a further example of what John the Apostle is teaching about himself as well as the rest of the Apostles and the rest of us. That is, we don't always, we, don't, we all don't understand always all the things that are being said to us all the things we read, all the things we hear preached, all the things a Christian friend might say to us, we don't always understand everything. It takes time. And gradually, God reveals, God conforms, God transforms, and He helps us to grow in faith, grow in faithfulness, grow in obedience. Nobody's perfect. Nobody will ever be perfect. We are to strive for perfection, Matthew 5, 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. But no one reaches it. We are all growing in the things of God, just like the disciples did. He, here, here, here in verse 16, he's not condemning himself and he's not condemning the disciples. He's merely explaining a fact of human nature and even of a believer's nature that we don't understand. And to the extent we don't understand, yes, we are guilty of that. But it's not as though God condemns us He's guiding us along the way to understand more and more. 17. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. The multitude were testifying. The multitude were proclaiming and explaining to others. There was a lot of talk in the city about Lazarus and Christ. A lot of talk about what just had happened and what Jesus did. So because of it, everyone's focus is on Christ. Because of what he has done, therefore they speak of him. Which is fine and good to the extent that they believe it correctly. 
verse 18. For this cause, or for this reason, also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. They wanted to go and meet him. They wanted to hear him. They wanted to understand better because of what he did, which is all fine and good. Whether they were sincere or insincere, at least they are inquiring and they are doing better than verse 19. Verse 19 is a contrast to 17 and 18. The multitude, the great multitude, they at least want to figure out something. They are are at least inquiring a bit as to who Jesus is and how it is that he would be able to raise up from the dead Lazarus who had been dead four days. Perhaps they heard of Jairus' daughter who had just died or of the widow's son of Nain who had just died. Things of that nature, perhaps they had heard of that and were amazed. But this man for four days and they really want to know how is it that he could do it and who is it? Well, it's a sign, as John says in verse 18. A sign signifies. So what does Jesus sign or Jesus signs, what do they signify? That he is the Christ. John 20, 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. 30 and 31. John 20, 30. Many other signs Jesus therefore also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. We know why. We know why these miracles, these miraculous signs are recorded. To believe not to be infatuated, not to be going to a circus or to a carnival, to a magic show. That's not the reason we read about the miracles of the Bible or the miracles of Christ. We read about them to understand what God is teaching us, what He is signifying by the sign. He's signifying that we must believe in His gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, in verse 19, 12, 19, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. The people are at least appreciative and thankful and joyful of Christ. He's not a murderer. He's not a mass murderer. He's not a violent man. He's not a revolutionary destroying and raping and pillaging cities and towns and villages. He's not doing anything like that. Correct? The multitudes understand that and they appreciate it. But in contrast, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that is the priests and the Pharisees, they can't see it because they are so selfish. They are so inward about themselves. They are thinking about themselves and themselves only. The people are going away. They're not listening to us. They say, you see that you are not doing any good. This is more evidence that whenever they held their councils and they talked to one another, they just spoke openly and 
they spoke openly, forthrightly to one another in order to get things done. If, you, if they didn't speak openly, they wouldn't get things done. We remember in chapter 11, even Caiaphas spoke openly uh, to the people that he was uh, consulting about, you know nothing at all. He says in 1149, you know nothing at all. So, the Pharisees, concerned more for their own reputation, for their own livelihood, for their own means of having success, fame and fortune in the world, they criticize each other. We're losing control. Instead of believing in Christ, they are concerned about themselves. And they say, look, the world has gone after him. The world. Now, they're not lying when they say this. They're not exaggerating when they say this. They're just using a figure of speech. They're just using a figure of speech. Just like we use figures of speech, even in reference to this word. They say the world, by that they mean the multitude of verse 18. The multitude of 17 and 12, the great multitude. That's what they mean. They, they're saying crowds of people are going after him. They're following him and listening to him. We can't let this happen. That's what they mean by the world. Speaking of an English example, how about in sports? Don't we say that so-and-so champion is a world champion? Does that mean that he conquered every person in the world? Or that every person in the world knows about him? No. Or what about when we say the World Series? The World Series in baseball. We're not lying. We're not deceiving any people. We just mean the big game or the big series of games, right? We just mean the most important one, the, fi- uh, the finale. The finalists are there playing. The two teams are playing each other. That's what we mean by the world. So figures of speech are common both in the Bible and also in English. That's what they mean here. The world has gone after him. But they don't like it. They're so base that they don't like it. So, what have we seen here? What have we seen here in reference to Christ's triumphal entry? One, we see in this passage that Jesus did these things according to Scripture. The entry of Christ into Jerusalem and his arrest, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and everything associated with his life is in accordance with Scripture. It's in accordance with the Old Testament. Hundreds of years before, through many prophets, not just one prophet, but by many prophets in many generations, over hundreds of years, even thousands of years, things were prophesied of the coming Christ. They were prophesied. They were predicted throughout the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament about? It's about Christ. It's preaching the coming of Christ. The New Testament is about showing, explaining, announcing the coming of Christ. The Old Testament, He will come. The New Testament, He has come. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about the gospel of Christ. In this case, the multitudes and even the disciples 
they needed to understand that they should not be lost in the physical circumstances. They should not be lost with their emotions. They should not be blinded by their circumstances. They cannot let their experiences cloud their thinking of Scripture. We read that that this is the case, that some in the multitude certainly only wanted this Jesus to be their physical king and conqueror when he didn't come for that purpose. The disciples, when they see all these things happening, it's not registering in their mind, making a connection to the Scripture. This teaches us that we should always, always have our minds thinking according to Scripture. Whatever we think, whatever we say, whatever we do, whatever we want to do, whatever we are about to do, whatever we are planning, always ask Is it written? Or where is it written? What does the scripture say? What does God say? What is God's wisdom? What is his advice to me? What does the Lord say to me about this matter or that matter? We should always be trying to understand what the will of the Lord is in reference to scripture. It says in Ephesians, Ephesians, Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. After describing the way we used to live in wickedness and the way many people still live, Ephesians 4, 20, he says, But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Notice there. Truth is in Jesus. If we learned Christ correctly, we learn that truth is in Him. If truth is in Him, then we should find out the truth in Him. Chapter 5. Chapter 5. Also, first he describes the wickedness of man that we should avoid. And then chapter 5, verse 7. 5, 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. How will we know what is pleasing to the Lord? unless we know what's in His Holy Word. We have to know what's in His Word. Read it, believe it, always remind ourselves of it, remind one another of it, encourage one another of it. That's how we will know. And that's how we avoid sin and seek to please God, by His Word. Further, we learn that the coming of Christ is ordained by the providence of God. It's by the providence of God, by the will of God, sovereign will of God. Jesus did not come into the world just like everybody else comes into the world. Jesus' purpose in the world was not uh, a purpose that the apostles invented. The apostles did not invent. The the apostles did not fabricate. The, The apostles were not deceivers. Nobody did anything like that when he came into the world. 
There are numerous predictions, numerous prophecies of the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the coming of Christ. Whatever we read in the Old Testament has a fulfillment either in the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. They will indeed be fulfilled. This was so believed by the apostles that nothing was an accident, nothing was happenstance, that it all came by the will of God, that this was the regular way in which the apostles explained to the people. We want you to believe. We want you to have confidence. We want you to know the truth. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Verses 2 to 3. Acts chapter 17. 2 to 3. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, Reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. He, according to his custom, does what? He goes to the synagogue. He reasons with them according to the scriptures, in the scriptures, from the scriptures, explains and gives evidence that the Christ, Christ Jesus, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. You see, the Jews, they understood that many references in the Old Testament had to do with the Christ, the Messiah. They knew so. They believed so. The problem they faced was saying, this Jesus of Nazareth is the one who fulfills all that was predicted. This one particular individual, this one man, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the one that you must believe fulfills everything written about him in preceding generations. Even Apollos, Apollos did the same. It says in Acts chapter 18, Acts 18, 28. 18, 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. He refuted them powerfully in public by knowing what's in the scripture and saying all of these predictions, all of these prophecies are fulfilled in this Jesus. He is the Christ. So this should build up confidence in us. People try to divide the Bible, destroy the Bible, eliminate parts of the Bible by saying there is a, a disjunction or there is a contradiction, there is something very, very different between the Old Testament and the New Testament so that Jesus is new, he's different, and he obliterates and abolishes everything in the Old. Not true. He actually fulfills it and correctly interprets it for us, just like the apostles. The, the apostles were taught by Christ and the apostolic teaching is the correct interpretation of the Old Testament. Okay, now, we see another contrast in verses 17 to 19. This contrast is between the multitudes and the Pharisees. The multitude and the Pharisees. 
The multitudes properly want to go to Christ. The Pharisees do not. How are we supposed to be? In this case, we've said the multitudes are correctly pursuing Christ. They are inquisitive. They are inquiring. They want to know. They are asking. They are learning. They're listening. And that's good. When the multitudes do that, we should be just like that. We should inquire. We should be curious. We should investigate. We should do just like that. Whenever the crowd, whenever the multitude, whenever most people are doing that, we should. We should understand the correct motives and do so. By the way, not if they're doing the wrong thing. It actually says in Exodus 23, Exodus 23 and verse 2, 23, 2, you shall not follow a multitude in doing evil. You shall not follow a multitude in doing evil by way of qualification. Whenever the crowd does wrong, we have to identify, are they doing right or are they doing wrong? Are they doing good or are they doing evil? If they're doing evil, we must avoid the evil. Exodus 23, 2. Do not follow a multitude in doing evil. So good. What about the Pharisees then? In contrast, they are not concerned about truth. They're not concerned about good, though they are the teachers of the people. What do we see here then? The Pharisees, the leaders of the people, are not following the people. So should the people follow the Pharisees or not? In this case. No. The Pharisees are wrong in this case. If the Pharisees were debating the Sadducees, and the Pharisees were saying, resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees are saying, no resurrection of the dead, then should the multitude follow the Pharisees or the Sadducees? They should follow the Pharisees. But then, when the Pharisees here are against Christ, and the Sadducees are against Christ, should the multitude, should the crowds follow the Pharisees or the Sadducees, or neither? Neither of them. They are obligated to avoid the Pharisees and not be evil like the Pharisees are evil in rejecting Christ. We should see what their motives are, see what they're doing, and if they're doing right, follow righteousness. If they're doing evil, then reject the evil, reject their wickedness. That's the perspective we should have on these matters. So, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.